the banks of the Great River, high above the Allure Gorge. This is the Buzzer Podcast. Indie music, new releases, industry insiders, out-of-the-box conversations with guests from the true north, from the west coast to the east coast, to across the pond, and from down under. And now, here is Shay. Hey, y'all. I am Shay. This is the Buzzer Podcast, independent music releases, global coverage. Welcome and enjoy. The Buzzer Podcast will wind down season one of both shows. The top shows of season one will start airing September 6th. The shows airing have the top fan engagement, subscribes, and download count. Our guest today is none other than Jack Spann. Jack is a disco, jazz, funk, rock artist out of New York, United States. Jack will be part of our Season 2 launch week, so don't miss that. The original broadcast aired January 19th. Enjoy the show! New York artist Jack Spann joins us today. Jack is a singer, songwriter, and master keyboardist pianist that has worked with top artists. One of them was David Bowie. His work with Bowie developed into Black Star, Bowie's last album. Jack's original songs are provoking and soaked in blues, country, and rock. Jack, thank you for joining the pod today. Welcome. It is truly great to have you here on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's great. Um, what is the story behind your third studio album, Propaganda Man, that was released in July of 2019? Um, I was a little, and I'm deliberately not exaggerating too much, but I, I was starting to get concerned about um, the level of propaganda that's going around in the world today. Uh and so I just started to write, you know, like a, a kind of related series of songs about propaganda and the people that exploit it and the people that are exploited by it. Um, and, you know, six months later, I had enough songs for an album. So I, I put out the album Propaganda Man uh, with the help of my sometimes collaborator, uh, Gary Tannen, who assisted me with mixing and mastering the album. Um, and I think within a couple of weeks, I'm going to have the video out for the song Propaganda Man. Um, so that's in, the, that's in the works. I'm really excited about that. Oh, awesome. Gary, Gary was involved with this project, uh, Jesus of Never Leave. He did my, he did my mastering. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and because we're, we're working remotely, we, we can't all get together. It was just like impractical to send him all of the tracks. So I mixed it myself and sometimes collaborator, uh, Gary Tannen, who assisted me with mixing and mastering. That's awesome. It's an awesome release. You've opened up for a lot of different acts and stars, including uh, Seely Dan and Cheryl Crow. Can you tell us a story about uh, one of these concerts that you did with these artists? Yeah. So um, opening up for Widespread Panic, uh, as quite often as the situation is like when you're the opening act, you have to play perform on the or on the on the headliners' equipment. Um, and I had the organist for Widespread Panic 
walk up and say, like, don't fuck up my organ. It's like, oh, really? Seconds before the show. Um, so it was quite amazing. Uh, one time, we were, and this was like just, I think, a year before, before um, Albert died. And I was opening up, my, my band actually was opening up for him in a club in St. Louis, Missouri. And the, the DJ, Master Ceremonies, got on the mic and said, Now, welcome, Jack Span Band. And I hit my keyboard and it went, <laughs> So they were like, uh, well, let's take a minute to work this out. And then after the show, we, we, we finally did work it out. Then we did our set. After the show, Albert walked up to our drummer, Billy Gales, who he had a relationship with, pulled out a wad of $100 bills, like thicker than I've ever seen in my life. And just, you know, I, I forgot what we got paid, a couple hundred bucks. He just peeled off a few hundreds. And he was like, don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it, things always go wrong. You know, like that's that's more the rule than not going wrong. Well, they make great stories. <laughs> uh, your 2017 release, Beautiful Man from Mars, is a tribute uh, to your time spent with uh, Bowie. The critical acclaim it got earned a head spot at Summerfest, so it was sort of pitiful a point in your career. Uh, tell us a story about your time with the artist. Well, I, I had gotten a call from a mutual friend. Um, he, they, at the time, they were looking for, and I, I couldn't talk about this for like two years because I signed a non-disclosure agreement. But they were looking for someone who played in the style of, or could play in the style of um, Stan Kenton, the old, um, you know, like white jazz swing music impresario, right? Um, and it just happened that I had studied a little Stan Kenton. Um, so I went in basically to audition. And uh, the moment I walked in, like, he just walked over to me from across the room. He's like, hello, Jack, I'm David. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, so I was just playing it cool, going, oh, okay, okay. So we played for about an hour, and he was like, you're hired. You know, show up here for the next four days. Um don't say a word about this to anybody. And I walked, I walked out of the studio that day. And as I was walking out, I saw this woman that I had worked with in Warhorse, uh, the Broadway musical, uh, not a musical, it's a play with music at Lincoln Center. And she said, oh, hey, Jack, what's up? And I was like, I want to tell you so bad. I just spent six hours with David Bowie, but I can't. No, he, he was really, really nice. He was very encouraging. Uh, one time he told me to go in and play piano solo. And I was like, like, what, what do you mean? Like, oh, no, just make something up. So I did. And I came out of the room thinking, I hope that's okay. And he actually stood up and gave me a standing ovation. was like clapping. Like, and I was like, oh, come on. It wasn't that good. But no, he was, he was really just, I, you know, there's all kinds of stories that circulate about people like that. You know, really famous people who are very rich. Um, some some not so great stories, but in my limited exposure to him, he was just the kindest, funniest, like most gracious man. So easy to work with. You know, like 
I finished my keyboard parts and he's like, oh, I'm going to go in and do a vocal part. So I'm sitting on the couch listening to David Bowie, like to his vocals, you know, like, oh my God. And I have one more story about that. Okay, great. Um, so at some point he was like, well, I'm going to tour next year. Would you be interested in playing keyboards? And I was like, yeah. Um, he's like, well, get your passport ready. And so this was like, you know, about a year before he died. Um, but as I was, as I was leaving on the final day, I like walked up to him and I did one of those things like, Oh, David, you've always inspired me so much. And thank you. And his response was fuck off, Jack. (laughs) And and he was smiling as he said it. And it was like, Oh, that's so great. And then I just read a couple of weeks ago, this article that Dave Grohl, who had also done some kind of work for Bowie, or I showed on the same show somewhere or something, but he had the same story. He was like, well, I walked up to him and I was like, oh man, you've inspired my career so much. And Bowie told him to fuck off. You know, like, so I guess that's his standard answer for anybody who, like, who's talking to oh, a huge fanboy or girl, you know, like, fuck off. Yeah. His signature, he has quite a character, but he actually has a reputation of a lot of artists that work with him, that he was a great guy to work with. Uh, Your tribute to him was released on vinyl format. What made that happen? And uh, do you see that other artists moving towards that format? Or was this a one-off for you? It was a one-off for me. Um, I had a thousand of them printed. I sold about... Well, it maybe a little, little bit less than a hundred of them, like through various online platforms and my website and the rest, I took like, um, and I'll send you one too. It's just like a, a promotional blitz sending this vinyl out to, you know, record station. Or, I mean, sorry, radio stations, college radio across the country. Got some, got some plays from that. Um, you know, I have a turntable. Most people don't. Um, I'm really lucky enough to have one and the vinyl is expensive. I have a, a friend's band and they just released, they're called the Groove Liner, and they just released a, a vinyl, um, <laughs> released a vinyl release. Uh, but they, theirs was way more expensive. They had theirs printed in the US and it's it can get kind of pricey, you know, to, to print a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand vinyl albums. I, um, through connections I had, I, I found this, this company in Hungary um, where, the, like in the U.S., you can't. There, there's certain kinds of plastic or vinyl that you can't use. There's certain like environmental laws that you know just make make it more expensive. Um, so I I went to the source in Hungary and got my. I don't I don't even remember even how much it cost, but I, it was considerably less than it would cost in the U.S. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad to have vinyl, and I'm going to send you a record. Do you have a Do you have a turntable, Shay? Um, we are in the process of getting one. Uh, my my my, chil- my children have them, but thank you so much. And it's an amazing and it's an amazing album. I, I I took a listen to all of your music in the back. Uh, you've performed considerably um, uh, in a lot of different venues. What's your favorite performance venue? Uh, I have to say that my time at Lincoln Center, like that is the absolute best stage 
that you can be on. It, it's of all the stages that I've been on. I mean, I haven't done Broadway shows at other venues. Um, well, except for one. Yeah, I, I did at the Little Schubert. But, um, you know, Lincoln Center, it, the, the, the acoustics are just so astounding. Like you walk into the center of the stage and if you project straight out, it's like almost like a, a speaker system coming back at you. The, the Just the reverberations and, you know, like the combination of reverb and deadening material. It's, it just sounds astounding. And I, in, in that show, I, I played a character called um, Songman. And I am the one that opened the show every night. So I would walk to center stage and sing this song, fading yeah. away like the stars in the morning, you know, and it was, it just would like shoot back to me. It was, it was just a great show. And that was, that was um, the War Horse show. Right. That was War Horse at uh, the, the main theater at Lincoln Center. Um, did you do the show, uh, the Hank Williams Lost Highway at the same no, uh, no. center? No, no. That was at a, a show, uh, a theater called The Little Schubert on 42nd Street. It's a smaller theater. It's still a really good place. Um, but it, it, it's like, I, I think, 500 seats there. Um, Lincoln Center had like 1,500. So, yeah, that was, that was really something... Uh, okay, and you also were uh, involved with the Nickelodeon show that starred Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me about that and what your contribution was? Yeah, um, it, it was a show called Who Whoopi's Littleberg. Um, and I, had a, I, I have a friend who I met after coming to New York when my wife got a job working for Chip Taylor, the guy who wrote Wild Thing. Uh, Angel of the Morning and a bunch of other songs like that, you know, Chip Taylor. Um, but his guitar player, his longtime guitar player, John Platania, had, he had, had his own solo career, and he also did a lot of on-spec work. So um, he invited me to come in and play piano for the show Whoopi's Littleberg. What, what had happened was um, Dr. John had recorded the theme, and written and recorded the theme song, and, um, you know, and it was really good, but he, there was no way he was going to be able to do the rest of the music just because, because of his concert schedule and his recording schedule. And it just wasn't, you know, it's, it was like background music. Right. So I got hired to do in the style of Dr. John, like all the piano music for the show. Um, and it, it turned out to be a pretty good deal. And, you know, like I didn't make Dr. John money on it, but. You know, it got pretty good and got some residual checks and, um, but they only, then they, they only did four episodes and then the show, and I'm not sure why, because I got really good critical reviews and including for the music. Um, but this, then they, they, they didn't pick the show up again. So, and it, it had such good reviews and it was, it was such a good show for children. You know, just imagine Whoopi. Like, but a lot of shows that are, are received well, don't for some reason, um, get picked up. So yeah, the entertainment business sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your own music is really rich in blues, country, and rock. Um, where did you draw your influences from? That's a good question, Shay. Thank you. Um, so I grew up in St. Louis. Uh, I, I played piano, you know, since I, ever since I was like five years old. And my parents had a piano, and I just began to play it. Um, I played, I was the church organist 
for our local Catholic church for a couple of years while I was in my teens. Um, and then I discovered the blues and ragtime and stride piano. And I, I started hooking up with these really unbelievably talented blues musicians left over from the old days in, in St. Louis. One of them was named uh, Billy Gales, Billy Gales. Um, and he had a big hit in like 1958 with the song I'm Tore Up, which is actually still on, you know, it's a, it's a, standard, it's a blues standard. Um, and he played with Ike Turner for many years. Um, yeah. And so like our, Ike Turner would come to our gigs. You know, like, um, and, you know, St. Louis is a great place. It, it, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's a very kind of racist environment in a way. But if you're a musician growing up there and you're, you know, you work with all these uh, I, I want to say people of different races, but it's actually black people, you know, <laughs> like, um, and I, I just, from a young age, I just was exposed to some of the best yeah. blues and, you know, it, it eventually wore off I, a, a little bit, I hope. Um, Can you speak to one release, one single, one album that, um, oh, definitely brings <laughs> out that background and the influences more so than others? I don't know. That, you know. That's a really good question. Um, I, I think maybe Jesus of New Orleans is is a good example of, you know, using the blues, like the basis of the blues, um, to kind of synthesize. You know, it's, it's like I, I was I learned a long time ago, like I am not like the blues singer, you know, like. I, I just known so many great blues singers that I, I, I wouldn't even want to attempt to do that. But then that's, that's another thing that led me to do my own music, you know, like, because I couldn't do other people's music very well. And I was like, darn it. I need to write my own music. You know, it's like, um, yeah, I, I think Jesus in New Orleans, I think that has like enough of a bluesy influence. Okay. Well said. Um, the, it was released, uh, September 23rd, 2020. Uh, and it's been very well received. It's an awesome funky track that gets you up dancing. Definitely gets me. I love it. Um, tell me about the singles inspiration. Um, when I was still a young man living in St. Louis, this was probably 19, 90 between some, sometime in the nineties. Um, there was this guy who was a local character. His name was Beetle Bob and he would like go to these shows, right? Like, so your band would be playing somewhere. Beetle Bob would come to the show and just dance furiously. <laughs> like, I mean, just, just by, by himself, it, you could not dance with this guy, you know, like, <laughs> nobody ever wanted to. Um, I, I loved it. I, a lot of bands were annoyed by it. You know, but he was kind of a force in St. Louis. Um, and it's also uh, based on um, my friend Tony Vroman, who is another frontman type person who just, you know, just does the craziest stuff and dances really crazy. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I just had this vision of this guy who goes out to the clubs to dance and he just dances like really crazy and nobody can dance with him. And, you know, and he looks like Jesus. So I was like, okay, I'm going to call him Jesus of New Orleans. Um, that, that's how it happened. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, that's a great name. That's a great name. Well, uh, you also, I've noticed you call it Janola. Um, Jesus of New Orleans was released on CD and digital format through uh, Big Boo Records and Daystorm Music. Um, so I'd like you, Jack, to t- just, do you have anything else to add before we listen to the track? I'm just going to tell the listeners it does play for about just under 10 minutes. But you know what? It's 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 a great track. Go grab yourself a coffee and turn up the music and listen to this great track that Jack has put out. Uh, do you have anything else to add, Jack? Well, yeah, I, I wanted to say, like, it's long. It's almost 10 minutes long, but it, it goes through a lot of different um, levels along the way. And there's also a, a shorter version out there, like a single version. Um, but I like the longer one. Yeah, so do I. That's why I put it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, just to listen to this out there, the the video that uh, is that accompanies the track which is the full production video that is going to be on the website under jack's profile uh and with along with all social links
So, Jack, what inspires your writing? Um, you did mention that uh, some of them is, I guess, the local music scene, um, what was going on in the world. Is there anything else that, uh, like, do you draw from recent events, politics, uh, anything else like that? I, I, I do, yeah, I do draw from politics and recent events. But my goal overall is to, I, I don't want to be the kind of songwriter who, um, who writes specifically about specific instances of injustice or, you know, racism or whatever other problem that there is out there. Um, I, I want, I, I want the music to sound good. Like that's my number one goal, you know, like not getting my point of view out there, but just making the, the, the song sound as good as possible while also having a meaning. Right. Like, um, uh -huh. you don't need to beat people over the head. Like, I, and, and I want to say like Jesus in New Orleans, most of my songs are much darker than that, you know, like propaganda, man. It's, it's kind of scary, you know, um, Jesus New Orleans is just supposed to be fun, but yeah, it's all the bottom line with me is, does it sound good? You know, if, if it sounds good, you can be like, you know, like, it doesn't mean anything, you know, like, it sounds good. You just have fun. Well, it's definitely a track that we need in 2020. Um, so, was your creative uh, process for Jesus of New Orleans, was it different than the other? Well, so it, we started, I started doing it in March, um, right kind of about when lockdown started happening here in New York. Um, so... Luckily, I, I got my friend who lives local to me, um, the drummer, um, Cecil Robington, um, to come over and do some tracks before we went into a full lockdown. Um, so I got some real drums in there. And then I started writing the song and it just seemed like it wasn't finished, right? Like I just kept going on and on. And then I'd have another good idea and I'd want to get that in. And, you know, so four months later, I finally ended up... Um, with uh with the final product um it, during the summer it was it was warm so and i i live in semi-rural area now after you know 20 years in new york city um but so the woman that sang on jesus in new orleans um would come over and be outside in my back space with headphones so we didn't have to be in the same room right like so she did all the vocals from she did all the vocals from outside. It was it was actually really cool. And luckily the weather wasn't too hot that day. And um, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, she's a she's she's a good singer. And my my friend uh, John Cavelli from St. Louis played the trombone part. I basically sent him <laughs> like this long thing, and I was like, man, can you just take a solo? And he did, and it, it sounded pretty good. Um, he actually he, he actually did the solo in the wrong key and sent it back. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to change the key of the song because it sounds much better like that. So it was one of those happy accidents. So it was a, a very collaborative process, and uh, it, well, it worked. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the the violin player is a guy I went to college with. He lives he lives in Florida. Um, the the cellist and uh and john uh you know trombone live in st louis uh kate kate the drummer lived by me 
Um, the guitar player uh, lives in London. Um, I, I played some of the guitar, but I, some of it was too hard for me, so I had him do it. Um, and I'm going to do more stuff like that. I mean, this you know, this this, this pandemic is not going to be ending anytime soon, and I am determined not to get coronavirus. So I'm just not going to go indoors with other people, you know, like. Um, yeah, I hear you. So it, it's the Jacks Van Band, uh, about the band, are they original members? Does it evolve over time? Um, well, well it, it's actually, um, you know, when I was living in, in New York City, there were like two or three people that I played with regularly. Um, after coming up here, I was really lucky to meet this drummer, um, Cecil Robinson. Um, he's just gets me immediately, right? It's like... Like the the way like you know John Lennon got Paul McCartney or vice versa like this drummer just gets me so um, you know like but now he's he's the bedrock of the band um, and the bass player um, lives in I, I don't know, it's gonna say like Bedminster New Jersey um, which is about a, you know it's about a forty five minute drive from me uh, maybe a little bit longer. But, you know, he hasn't played either since, I mean, we played one gig over the summer when we had an outdoor gig. Um, Tell me about that. Oh, it's, it's, there's a, a place called um, the, the Gardner Brewing Company up here in my area, and it's a huge outdoor space. They have an outdoor stage. Um, they serve, you know, the delicious beer that they make themselves and their own kind of style of, you know, I, I don't know. Like continental bar food, you know. It's a, but it's really good. Um, yeah, so we've been we've been playing there a lot. Um, now it's moved inside, and they've offered us, you know, more gigs. And I'm like, no, I'm just not going to do it. You know, like it just doesn't seem like a good idea to, you know, potentially because well, when you start playing music and you know, combine that with alcohol. And the music's kind of loud and people start getting up in each other's faces to be heard, right? Like, um, and I, I just don't want to contribute to like a, a spreading event, you know? Like I, I, I used to play at this place in um, New York City called Marie's Crisis. I played some gigs there. And I just read in the New York Times today that they have now opened up again. Excuse me. They have now opened up again and they have people coming in. I, I just, I, I know those people are desperate, you know, both for employment trying to pay their rent and people like at home like that just are freaking out because they've had to stay home since march but i i just don't think it's a good idea you know like yeah i don't want to do it yeah, yeah people are getting restless uh, uh, it's very understandable why so um are the projects solely your inspiration or is it a collaboration between you and the band members um, I mean, I, I'm the songwriter. I, I do the arrangements. Um, if, if I have, you know, Mike, Mike Preen's the bass player. If I have him playing on something, I just let him do it. Right. Like it, it that's, you know, one, one of the things about being successful in music, I think is like finding people that you don't have to dictate to that just kind of get it. Um, so yeah, this, this drummer and bass player just get it, but I, you know, I'm the songwriter and, you know, kind of the arranger and, um, 
So they are your inspiration as you work with them. That's great. Yeah. So um, what can we expect from you within the next six months? Like you uh, you already said you want to be cautious in terms of the venues you play. Are you planning any releases, any more music? Yeah. Um, I, so I, like I think I mentioned before, I'm doing a video for Propaganda Man. Um, and that's going to be done within a couple of weeks. And I, uh, I'll be sure to let you know about that. Um, and I've got another song almost done. It's called, it's a great day for a civil war. Um, so yeah, so that's coming next. going to put that out with a video and, um, the, the name of the band is going to be, and it's the same people, but we're going to call it Jack Span, the Spandemics, um, just to kind of, you know, document this, you know, in a year, a year from now, this will probably all be over. So, <laughs> I mean, hopefully. Um, and, you know, I am just, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen to our country, you know, like, um, but you're in Canada, so you're, you're watching from a distance kind of, but, you know, I mean, yeah. Well, yes, in Canada, but uh, we're dealing with the pandemic uh, just like the United States. And in fact, all over the world, it's affected everybody, including indie artists from around the world. So, Jack, how did working with David impact your music? I wouldn't say playing for him impacted my own music that much since I was well into my 40s when the sessions happened. What is more important was how much he impacted my musical brain when I was a young artist. The way borders between so many styles of rock just melted away under his influence. Even today, it's like, is, you know, is he a glam artist? Is he a rock and roller? Rhythm and blues? I mean, you can't think of anybody that doesn't like Bowie. There must be a few people out there somewhere, but I haven't met them yet. But how did uh, David affect uh, your views on creating a project? <laughs> there, there was one thing, at least when I was there, you know, for those few days, Bowie seemed to do almost everything on his first or second take. So, for instance, I got to sit in the outer room when he was doing his vocals. I was there alone on the couch with three people in the room, the producer, the engineer, and an intern on the console, and me. So I'm listening, and it seemed like he never did more than two takes on any of his vocals. Like, like he knew in advance what was going to sound good. Um, yeah, the next record I do, I'm going to do that. Two to three takes tops. And reading up on it, I've discovered that he did a lot of the same thing on, like, Hunky Dory and Spiders from Mars. Um, he just got together musicians that he trusted and said, okay, boys, here we go. And they did a couple of takes, and that was it. Um, amazing, right? And what was he like to work with? Well, Shay, he was really funny. <laughs> Um, great sense of humor, and he had a real challenge for putting people at ease. Like, I felt comfortable within 30 seconds of meeting him. Um, 
I think that's what he wanted in people that he was playing with. He just wanted them to feel comfortable because, you know, that's how good music gets made. First day, about a two to three hour period where he wanted to make sure I could basically play any idea that he could hum, that, you know, I could play the, a part the way he described it, like emotionally, rhythmically, dynamically, loud, soft. And after that, pretty much had the freedom to play whatever the fuck came to my mind, right? It wasn't like, Jack, go play a staccato followed by four long chords and, you know, etc. It was more like, Jack, go in there and play a part. Any part. So I did, and he kept telling me it was great. So I kept doing it, just playing parts for the different songs. After the first day, Tony Visconti called me about three minutes after I left the studio and I'm, I'm out on the street and I thought, uh-oh, I guess I'm getting fired. But he was like, David really likes you, so <laughs> come back tomorrow. And I was like, okay, that was cool. That was very, very, very cool. And the album that you put out, uh, Beautiful Man from Mars, is that a tribute album to Bowie? Uh, okay, I, I can't call it a tribute. That would imply I actually had the talent to do a tribute album to Bowie, um, which would be nice, but I, I would say this is more like a Jack Span album with a nod to Bowie. Well, I love the album. Can we talk about the track, She Makes Pornography on the Weekends? Awesome track name, by the way. Well, um, the song Beautiful Man from Mars is obviously directly inspired by Bowie. Um, but the one I hope you play is She Makes Pornography on the Weekend. I thought about this song a lot, but pornography has a lot of facets. You know, there's the horrible kind, like when people search Pornhub or whatever for 12-year-old babes or barely legal. <sighs> there's millions of victims, and, and the mostly men who produce that kind of thing need to face way more stringent controls and punishments. There needs to be like an Interpol for porn. You call it Interporn. You know, <laughs> it's just bad. And then there are, you know, like professional porn actors who are in it to make a buck or a million bucks. They have really nice bodies, high quality production studios behind them. They're young and simply don't give a fuck what the morality police think about their perfectly legal enterprise, right? And then there's people like my friend, I will call her Janet, who had a chance to make a couple hundred or a thousand bucks you know, masturbating for a camera or making out with another girl. Um, just to tie this back to Bowie, I, I think he's the first artist I was aware of who took, you know, sexuality seriously, where it wasn't just, I want to kiss you or I want to bang you or you make me horny, but more like you are a mental, spiritual and physical sexual creature. And you don't need to be defined by other people's, you know, drab opinions of what you should be. So there's my friend Janet, who's having trouble paying her bills. Um, you know, she's got 
small child at home. I, I don't want to give away too much about this person. Um, but, you know, then has a chance to make a few extra bucks on the weekends. Um, you know, doing some quote-unquote soft porn um, in the privacy of her home. And, and that's what that's what the song is about. Um, there's a lot of desperate people out there, especially now. And, um, you know, until we can figure out a way <laughs> as a society to address this issue, people will continue to make porn at home. And some of these poor people don't make anything or they make 20 bucks or 50 bucks. So this song is a tribute to a subset of some of those people. And I hope it's received in the same spirit in which I wrote it, which is one of generosity and compassion. Well, next up, she makes pornography on the weekend. Take this number. Nobody has to know. She makes pornography on the weekend Between her busy schedule
That was awesome. Jack, I really want to have you back on the show in the future. I would be delighted and honored. So, Jack, direct us to where we can find your music, share your music, follow you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say the music is on almost every platform. So it's like, you know, Spotify, um, Amazon, Apple Music iTunes, like all that stuff. And my Twitter handle is at Jack Piano NYC. Um, and I, I don't do Twitter much because I, I kind of got tired of it earlier this year, but I, I sure would be glad to hook up with anybody from around the world or around the country that is like-minded and, you know, wants to get together. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Jack. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you, Shay, and I'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you all for tuning in to the Buzzer Podcast Network. Season 2 begins soon. The Buzzer Podcast will wind down Season 1 of both programs. The top episodes of Season 1 will start airing September the 6th. These are the Season 1 shows with leading fan engagement, subscribes, and download count. The gratitude I have for the remarkable artists who share their music on the Buzzer Network is over the moon. To our loyal listeners, thank you for tuning in and being a powerful part of our achievement. Because of you, the Buzzer Podcast is top 10% of the most popular shows out of over 2.6 million podcasts ranked by Listen Score. Follow us on Instagram at The Buzzroll Media and on Twitter at The Buzzer Indie. Subscribe, please, at TheBuzzerPod.com. Without you, none of what we do is possible. Listen in and remember, without music, our campus is blank. On Air Indie, from iPad to yours, over the airways. Until next time, cheers, y'all.